Welcome to Real Talk, Real Women Breaking the Silence Around Abuse. I am Gemma Serenity Gorokov, your host, and today we have the immense honor to welcome Shay Sparks. Here is her introduction you can read on LinkedIn. Ever feel like an imposter? Or maybe even like you are no longer fired up about life? Like you are living on a hamster wheel? Shay Sparks is an energetic catalyst and fearless communicator who sparks leaders in transition who are unclear go from fear to fired up about their life and business. Through her renowned Spark Your Alpha program, Shay's audiences and clients experience more confidence, amplified emotional intelligence, and the spark that ignites their fearless action. As the CEO, meaning Chief Excitement Officer, of Sparks of Fire International, she holds the Power of Investing in People podcast, is the author of How to Get Your Voice Back, and is a certified fearless living coach and trainer and the co-founder of Hashtag Firestarters Book Project. Auntie Shay Shay to all of her friend's kids, she is also an expert dog sitter and a rookie kayaker. Most importantly, Shay wants to inspire others to move confidently through change so that they can step into their fire power. Welcome, Shane. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Gemma, so much for having me. I am honored to be here. Thank you so, so much. My first question for you, Shay. Can you please introduce you a little bit to your life journey with an emphasis of the kind of abuse you overcame? Because we are on Real Talk, Real Women, breaking the silence around abuse. So what are we breaking the silence about? Yeah, so I was in an abusive relationship with someone who was a narcissist, um, I'll, uh, totally undiagnosed with all of these, right? So the, the terms that I came with, with up with was he possibly had borderline personality disorder, which leads to qualities like a narcissist. He did some major gaslighting, manipulation, um, he, he was verbally abusive, mentally abusive, really, you know, got into my head of who I thought I was with that whole gaslighting thing and then manipulated me and talked to me into doing things financially that I wouldn't have normally done. But because I didn't have the boundaries or the confidence to say no, um, I ended up walking away with $60,000 in debt um, just to be kind, my choices to help him. And then, gosh, there was physical abuse. Uh, there was, he had choked me and he never punched me, uh, but he choked me and would scratch me and he'd held a gun to my head. There was just so many different things that he had done that I honestly, during all this process, was just waiting for him to kill me. I was just waiting to die. Let's see a hard one. When you're just waiting to die, that means that you have completely, during that experience, given away your own power, mm-hmm. like disempowered completely. Yeah. So understanding that that has been a part of your life, you said 12 years, it's not your entire life. There is a moment in time when you reclaim your power back and when you choose to change the story of your life. Can you please lead us to this transition? Absolutely. So I say that there were several defining moments. 
and it wasn't an, an aha and, you know, clap of the hands like the movies and then your life's different and now you're living in technicolor, right? You go from black and white to color. It wasn't like that at all. But what happened was I'm a very spiritual person and a very prayerful person. And so I used to spend hours and hours and hours every day praying for him. And one day it occurred to me that I wasn't praying for me, that I was only focusing on God, heal him, help him, you know, be with him, wrap, you know, wrap your arms around him and comfort him. It never crossed my mind up until just one day the thought occurred to me, well, why am I not praying for me? Why am I not praying for those things for me? So I started to then add that to the my prayers of God help me. What do you want me to do in this situation? Who do you want me to be in this situation? How do you want me to show up? How you know, uh help heal me, comfort me in this time. I know that you have me here for a reason, so you know, show me that this is purposeful for being here. And over the course of the years, what ended up happening is so many details, but the quick, quicker version is that I found out when I was, at some point, I found out that he had married someone else and cheated on me with her or cheated on me, her with me, depending on how you look at it, and had another child with her. He had already had one child with her, but we had moved in together. And at right after that point, they got married, but was living with me. So the, all of the lies that was happening is so confusing that you don't even know which way you're coming or going because he was such a master manipulator at lying and, and gaslighting that somehow when I found out, it wasn't until, gosh, I think it was like four years in. And it was, you know, oh, I'm going to get a divorce. I'm going to be with you. You're the one I want. She uses the kids against me. She never lets me see them, blah, 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 blah. So there was that aspect, right? And then I started to pray, and it was like God was saying to me, you're there for the those children. And I said, okay. So I never verbally, verbally said that, but what ended up happening is he started then to say, will you you know, buy them Christmas gifts? Will you buy them school supplies? And so next thing you know, I'm using my finances, not his. I'm using my finances to pay for their thing. When I had never gotten to ever meet them, he never brought them around. So that was another defining moment. And I had told him one day I was sitting on the couch and I said, talking to him on the phone, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm done. By this time, we were no longer living together. After I found out about the the marriage, I'd moved out. And of course, time we'd spent apart, he manipulated his way back in and gaslighted his way back in. And so now here I am several years later, sitting on the phone with him saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And he starts crying and saying, you know, I'm going to kill myself and, you know, all the things that you're threatening. And as he's telling me all this, I'm hearing as if someone is sitting next to me on the couch, speaking to my ear saying, not now, not now. And I honestly thought it was my own fear speaking that I was fearful of being alone and not now was I was just waiting for him to kill me. It wasn't until several years later that he was in a car accident. He was in a coma. He had brain damage. 
and his family was putting the the expectation on me that I was going to have to make sure that I took care of him, that I was going to have to do all the paperwork and make sure that, you know, the the um, life insurance and the health insurance and all that is taken care of. And I said, no, I have been trying to break up with him for years. And this insurance that you're speaking about, you know, he's not, he doesn't have a job where he has insurance. And his sister said to me, you're kidding me. I just talked to him two weeks ago. And he had told me about this great job that he had with insurance and benefits and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, he, he uh, hasn't worked for a while. And she said, so who's supporting him? And I said, I am. She said, so you're enabling him? And I was devastated and ashamed. I mean, I was ashamed anyway for what was happening to me. But the fact that I wasn't believed in the family was even more so devastating. And not to mention the fact that they knew that he was married and had children with this other woman. And I was also with them on the holidays and they never told me. They never told me the truth. So that's when I really felt as when I was driving home from the hospital the first night after his accident, I felt that that not now that I heard so many years before while I was sitting on that couch, that not now meant I had to hand him back to his family. So no matter how much anger or grief or confusion or frustration or relief that I was feeling at that time, my duty as a human on this earth was to fill in the blanks for whatever his family didn't know. And they didn't know exactly how bad he was. They didn't know what the kind of alcoholic he was. I had to let them know that. So that accident, that driving home from the the hospital that day was a defining moment. Then a few months later, I was had told his sister multiple times, like I'm breaking up with him. I had been abusive. I've been trying to break up with him for years. It's your responsibility. It's not mine. What I feel like he, I've done research on his personality. I feel like he's doing all these things because he was abused as a child by your mother. And she says, you know, he lies, right? You know, you can't believe anything he said. And I said, you're right. And he's not the one who told me. Your aunt and uncle told me. And when she heard that, she was blown away. And then her memory kicked in and she said, I hope he doesn't blame me. And that's when I realized another defining moment that everything that I had lived with him and with his family was a complete lie. So none of it, none of it could make sense to me logically or rationally. So a lot of times when we experience something, we think about, well, why did this even happen? And when you've experienced something that makes no sense, you have to let go of wanting it to make sense. So that was a huge realization to me at that moment. And then I think it was just a couple of weeks later, they had moved him to the nursing home and she had called me and begged me to go see him. And at this point, only the way he was communicating was his uh, blinking his eyes because he had no movement at all in his body voluntarily. So I go to see him in the nursing home. I get there and he was asleep for a while when he stopped snoring. That's how I knew he was not no longer asleep. 
And I looked over at him and he was just staring at me. And the person that I knew, even though he was abusive, at some point he was my best friend too, right? That's why we stay because of the good times. Our brain kicks in to remember those good times. And so I'm looking at him in the eyes and I'm thinking, oh, he's gone. The person I knew isn't in there anymore. So I said to him, can you hear me? Blink your eyes. And he blinked his eyes a whole lot. And I said, do you know who I am? Blink your eyes. And he paused. He didn't blink his eyes. And so I repeated the question, do you, can you hear me? He blinked his eyes. Do you know who I am? He didn't blink his eyes. And I just stood there for a second and was overcome with this odd feeling of more confusion, more grief, and just a, a sadness, you know, for him, for his life. And I just looked at him and I said, goodbye. And I turned and walked out. And when I opened the door to go outside, this other weird feeling came over me as if I was having relief and grief at the same time. So those were just a couple of the defining moments that happened while I was in that relationship. After that part of my healing journey, there were several more. <laughs> and one of them was that I had been waiting to die, not just in that 12 years relationship, but my life prior to him. That, you know, I was raised that you get a good job that pays well, that you don't find what you're passionate about. You don't find that you love or that lights you up that you're good at. You just find a job. You do the status quo. So I wasn't really living or thriving. I was just surviving. And I thought to my back to myself, my younger teenage self, and I thought, wow, I was a teenage alcoholic. There was no way I was th thriving in that world. I was only surviving. And it's just looking back at all the stages of my childhood, I was like, wow, there wasn't much joy. There wasn't much happiness, which is what happens in uh, relationships like that. One of the books that I read that was a defining moment was Women Who Love Too Much. And that really showed us how when we're in a relationship like that, it's because it's familiar. So statistics will tell you that women either go back to the abuser or they go back to someone similar. It's because we don't know anything different. And learning those lessons were defining moment after defining moment every single time I learned something new about myself. And at the time I was working at a hairstylist and I had amazing clients that when I finally started to share with them, because I never in those 12 years said the word abuse out loud to anyone. I hid it as much as I possibly could. I was so ashamed. And when I started to share with them and when I started to tell them, you know, this is what I've been healing with. I've been learning about myself that, you know, things like I'm emotionally unavailable. I like to wrap things in sarcasm and not really talk about what it is that I'm feeling or thinking. And then they said, oh, my gosh, I do the same thing. And they went away for four to six weeks and they would come back and they said, you know, I did what you said. I said, I said, what did I say? You said to practice being vulnerable instead of wrapping it in sarcasm. And my situation changed. My relationship changed with my parents or my children or my spouse or, or my team at work if they were a leader or my boss. And I'm like, wow. And then they would start to speak life into me and say things like, you should be a coach. You should write a book. You should start a podcast. 
all of these different things that I had kind of had in the back of my mind, but because I had no self-confidence or no self-worth up until that point, I didn't think I could do any of that. So when I started to learn, listen to them and I borrowed their confidence in me was another defining moment and doors started to open and I started to walk through and learn how to be a speaker, how to write a book, how to be a podcaster, all these different avenues to where now that's what I do. I help other people use and find their voice for their legacy so that their family can remember them, so that their relationships can be remembered, so that the positive things about them can be their legacy. So your your story is so touching and moving. Thank you for sharing it with all of us. I'm sure many of us relate to part or the entirety of it because it speaks truth. It speaks truth. Mm. It's not the first time I hear someone lying about being married to someone else and moving in with you as if you would be the one and only when you are definitely not in his life or her life. Right. And that is so confusing. And indeed, following that prompt, that divine prompt of you will not leave him now, there is something more. You will surrender him to his family, but how? You had no idea how. You just had to trust that voice. Yeah. And then having that experience of really seeing him to his life, his family, his situation, not carry any longer. Wow. Yeah. How did the relationship go with your parents after that? Mm. Thank you for asking, because this is another huge defining moment. I started Christian counseling immediately after the week, the first within the first week of his accident and read the books of uh, Women Who Love Too Much and Boundaries. And between those, that really shifted how I started to think. And when I say started to think, most of the time we are living on autopilot that we don't even realize the thoughts that we have on our heads are either empowering us or disempowering us. And just when I started to realize, I did what I call a brain dump, and I just journaled everything down when I was saying to myself in that inner negative critic. And it was disempowering. I mean, those are things I said to myself that I would never say to another person, right? And I just saw that, and I held my thoughts captive. And I realized that if I was speaking like this, it's probably because someone in my childhood, placed them there. So then when I was talking to my parents and I would see glimpses of how they were maybe sarcastic or maybe um, backhanded compliments or, you know, maybe putting me down, but it didn't look like it was putting me down because it was, you know, kind of hidden, covert. It was literally something I would call them out on it in a way that was not blaming or shaming. It was just being curious about why they were saying what they were saying. 
So I would say like, what prompted you to say it that way? Are you trying to manipulate me? Or are you trying to ask me for what you want? And my dad was like, minute, minute, what? Like, I don't even know what that word means. And I said, dad, I understand that you don't know what that word means or that you know how to pronounce it because it's foreign to you. I didn't know how to pronounce vulnerable. So I completely understand that. But what I found is that I was in a relationship where he manipulated me by gaslighting me and asking, trying to get me to do something without actually asking me. So it would seem like it was my idea. So what you just said to me sounds like it could be manipulation. It sounds like it could be gaslighting. Sounds like you could actually want me to do something. But instead of asking me, you're going about it in a different way. So are you trying to ask me to do something? And he was like, wow, yeah. And I said, and if I decide not to do it, are you going to be disappointed in me? And he said, no, I'm not going to be disappointed in you. I said, so you'll be able to respect my no. And he said, yes. And I said, wow, my whole life, there was another defining moment, my whole life up until then, I thought that no one ever respected my no. Especially my dad, because it was instilled in me that you respect your elders. And so if they tell you to do something and not ask you to do something, you end up doing it. And it might have been just a simple thing like, you know, getting, you know, running an errand for him. But if my time didn't allow it, I would have made time to make it happen. So I realized that when I then started to change the way I spoke to my dad and we'd call him out on things and then I would preface it by saying, Dad, this reminds me of a time when my ex and I blah, blah, blah. And he was saying the same things that you were saying. So when you think about why I was in the relationship I was in, this is why is because it was familiar. And he started to change. Um, he was literally had no conscious decision or no conscious realization that he was acting in a certain way towards me. Now, I can't say that for his new wife or my stepmom. I can only say that for me. And that changed. And then I would have conversations about my mom, his first wife, and my and my brothers. And I would say, well, have you considered asking them this rather than giving them an order? And he was like, wow, got it. And so because I was then his his sound, uh, my vent, his venting partner, it changed our dynamic where there were many years that we didn't even speak to where he then became my best friend in his last five years of life. And I was with him at the hospital for his last two weeks, even though we didn't know. And he, I was the one that held his hand as he took his last breath. Such a blessing. Such a blessing. You actually healed your father mm. in his lifetime. Yeah. That is an accomplishment worthy of an angel. You have been an angel for your father. Yeah, and that's where, you know, I think my my passion for helping others came from because I saw 
the shift in my dad just by the language we were using and the asking the questions to clarify it more rather than just accepting that what he was saying was being true. And um, I said, well, if I can turn a trauma from my, my abusive relationship into a treasure to my dad being my best friend, then, then if I can do this for myself, then, then other people can do this as well. And my clients have just been blown away by how they have taken things and been able to reframe what they've gone through so that it will help them, not only them, but their families as well. It's, it's so precious. I like how you go from, how you go to treasure. Something that is so precious, so important, so dear to your heart. I, I really like this this version of explaining how you transform things. Hmm. It's beautiful, really. And I'm, I'm very, very proud of you and happy for you and for all the lives you are transforming one after another. So grateful to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's it, It's been a long road, and I knew after one of the other defining moments that happened uh, about five or six months after I was able to walk away from the nursing home when he was in it, was I had at least five women come to me, whether they were clients or my friends, who started to share with me that they were in abusive relationships. And by this time, I had figured out that there are tools that are missing. And one of the things is tools wise that are missing is what is it that I wish someone had said to me? And what I wish someone had said to me is talk to me about worth and talk to me about loving myself. Those two were so foreign concepts when I was in that relationship that when I talked to these other women, they didn't see how much they were giving of themselves and not even having boundaries to protect themselves or to protect their own energy, their own things, their own decisions, because we get so wrapped up in making decisions for the other person. So once I started to unlock that and start having conversations with them, for one, it was a no-brainer. She immediately left, uh, getting a haircut, she immediately left, went and broke up with him immediately, and now has married someone else and has a beautiful life and three children and just such a huge difference. But he, the, the person that she was with, wasn't even supporting her. She was supporting him, and he was not supporting her in any area of her life. Yeah, so just by noticing those little things, it's like, that's not okay. By recognizing what is putting words on the abuse, this is why we have that show going on. Putting the right words on the abuse, recognizing what is abuse, knowing that abuse goes both ways. You abuse yourself, therefore you allow others to abuse you. So taking back your own power, reclaiming your own power, putting up boundaries that are good for you and good for others, mm -hmm. and respectfully disagree with your elders. <laughs> That's it. That is so, so important. 
that is so, so important. And these are all elements of healing so that you can get back your life, your choice, your decision, your dreams, your desires, becoming yourself, <laughs> the one you were born to be. <laughs> That's a big, big thing. You accomplished so much in so little time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. You mentioned choice, and I, I will bring back this story, if I may share uh, six months before my dad passed away. And we had no idea that it was going to be six months. He had started to share the story how he was drafted to Korea during during the war. Now, he didn't say the Vietnam War, but dates line up that it was probably the Vietnam War. And as he's telling this story, I'm asking him questions about, you know, what he was doing there and stuff like that. And he said to me, I didn't have a choice. And when he said those words, they came across the table and permeated my soul because I thought, oh my God, how many times have I said that to myself? So it's like I and had inherited his fear mindset in that I didn't have a choice, which is why I didn't have a choice to go to a different school or a different college or to find a job I really wanted to do. I didn't have a choice. I had made my bed. You have to lie on it. That was one of those things I was told as a kid. And that's why I was in that relationship. I didn't have a choice. And I realized that part of my journey is to help others to see that they do have a choice, that they can make new choices and they can make win-win choices. It doesn't have to be uh, a win-lose type of situation. It can be a win-win. It is true. I remember when I was living in Geneva in Switzerland, there was some um, construction materials that allowed uh, the construction worker or anybody else to write on it in a non-permanent way. But someone wrote on those uh, wood planks on top of a high building, you always have the choice mm. and i was reading those words while living during 15 years in domestic violence during the second 10 years relationship i was reading those words every day because it was on my way to do, do, do my job my work and every time i was reading that i was thinking to myself it is not true I do not have the choice because if I choose to not go to work, then I would lose my home. I don't want to lose my home. Therefore, I do not have the choice and to go to work. And even that thought process was yeah, because I did I was not open to other possibilities. Right. And when you start to really envision that yes, you do have a choice. That allows the universe of possibilities. What I like to say is that don't you think that God slash universe is much more creative than you? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so don't you think that you can simply rely on there to say, I don't know what spiritual realm you believe in, that they can actually handle your 
tiny little human problem. Yes. Okay. So trust and go. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think that's the that's the hard part is the trusting. We oftentimes, as uh, we're in that fear based thinking, oftentimes we think we have to control the situation or that we have control by staying where we stay. And the reality is, is if we had access to more trust, what would that look like? And if we had access to more trust for ourselves, not for other people, but for ourselves, what would that look like? So if you were in that relationship and you were like, oh, I can't leave. I don't, this is my job. I'll lose my house. But if you had more trust to say, oh, I trust that I will find another job, even better job, then that is where the choice aligns with that. And you know what happened after I decided to trust and go? This is when my defining moment happened. I followed that divine prompt to leave domestic violence once and for all. And then I met my third, last, and dream husband, an angel in the flesh. And he not only came to love me, but he also came rich in my life, in a, in a version of richness and wealth that I had never experienced before. It was only a dream for me. So home was obviously homeowner. R was obviously car owner. There was no lease. He didn't even know what renting a home would actually mean and what it would represent. I mean, it was a totally different ball game. So I was so fearful to lose my job and lose the rent money to keep my roof that then when I met him, I discovered a completely different world. It was that I wouldn't have even imagined possible for me. Mm. And it did happen when I trusted and went. Yeah. Beautiful. How beautiful. Mm-hmm. She. She, you are such an angel for the people. We understand that you are the chief excitement officer. <laughs> this is another version of the CEO, right? Yes. Of Sparks of Fire International, your company. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the programs that you offer. Sorry, the programs that you offer and how you help people. Yes. So I have two, well, three different programs. One is Spark Your Alpha, which is a one-on-one coaching. Um, I also have a podcast that's called the Power of Investing in People podcast. And part of the uh, Spark Your Alpha coaching is bonus masterclass episodes with that. And then we do group coaching as well. And then we also have one-on-one. So it really helps people break through that fear mindset. It helps people find their voice. And it helps people see the potential of things that they didn't even know was possible. Um, And then I also have Spark Your Voice, where I am a podcast for hire, a host for hire. And I help people find their voice in their business by I interviewing them so that they can then make sure that they're talking about their genius. They're amplifying their own genius in in their business, their FAQs on their website. They're they're sharing their client, you know, testimonies. And that way we can really have a conversation about it. 
whether then they do a monotone monologue because that ends up what's happening with with the highly intelligent professionals that I work with. And then also in the Spark Your Voice, I also am a project lead for books. So if someone wants to become an author, I am a project lead to handle all the details behind the scenes. And if you come with a manuscript, and I can do coaching throughout that process and take care, help take care of all of the details that go along with books. How amazing is that? Didn't you see? So I see your website, shaysparks.com. Let's yes. send that out to make sure that everybody can find you. S yes. as in Susan, H as in hotel, A as in apple, S as in Susan, P as in Paul, A as in apple, R as in Robert, K as in kilo, S as in susan.com. Yes. Sparks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just making sure that you're able to just write it down quickly. Also, of course, in the description of this episode, there is all the links, often clickable. Sometimes you have to copy paste. That's all good. But you have all the links. And Shay, if you update your links, please reach back out to me so that I may update the description and we can still find you. And otherwise, the audience, if you are looking for Shay and you don't find her, ask me, I will find her. <laughs> absolutely all right beautiful thank you so much for being here today for enlightening us about healing your deepest your deepest shadow and accepting to go to the light and be the light this mm. is just amazing well thank you for having me and thank you for being a catalyst to share other people's stories, to know that they're not alone and that you, when you build a support system, um, the, the, the way will be lit for you to go. So just know, hope your listeners get that. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much. Have an amazing day. Talk to you later. <laughs>